The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, the other day I posted on my Weibo page uh, asking my followers, who are all, in, we're all Chinese because it's written in Chinese, about their understanding of the Huawei issue. And what came back to me was so... Fascinating, and it mirrors the conversations that I have offline as well with people about uh, Huawei or the debt trap narrative or U.S.-China relations. And it's remarkable that here in China, that people are oftentimes having a totally different conversation and have a completely different understanding of the issues than what we take in the West or in international news as being kind of an accepted fact. And it, it's it's. It's surreal to see how different it is. Now, I actually don't want to pick on China here too much because when I go back to the U.S., uh, I find the same thing. Like the the discussions that people have about China and the U.S. are detached from reality in so many different ways. Um, oftentimes, they're much more polarized. It's much more heated than it is over here. And I would imagine, Kobus, in Africa, there's a third conversation that's going on that is very, very different than what we're having here in China and in the U.S. as well. And it really goes to the fact that these narratives, the way that people talk about things and the way that they see the issues are guided so much by culture here in China, by politics and censorship and media control in the United States. It's certainly by commercial and culture and patriotism. But all of this influences how we see and understand these issues. And that's going to be our conversation today. I think also, you know, in the case of the U.S. and China, being a superpower or uh, close to a superpower tends to create its own reality. You know, they're like planets. They create their own gravity and, and weather. Um, and so, you know, they, they create bubbles within which national conversations keep going on without necessarily being particularly open to, to opposing views from the outside. And one of the voices that we want to get and we don't hear enough of is from the Chinese journalist side, people who are actually kind of writing the stories that other people are consuming. So we thought it'd be a great idea to invite a Chinese journalist on who covers international affairs and covers Africa specifically to better understand the discussions and the reporting that's going on here in China in order to really open the door a little bit for people outside of China to understand the discussion. So I am personally just so excited to have onto the show for the first time uh, Effie Zhang, uh, Zhang Mengyuan, who is a reporter at Caixing Globus, Shijie uh, Shuo, which is part of Caixing, which is the kind of the Wall Street Journal of China. And uh, we'll have her explain a little bit about what Caixing is, but Caixing is really one of the most reputable news publications in China, again, like the, the Wall Street Journal. She works in a division that is really, really neat because it's geared at young people. And this Caixing Globus uh, really doesn't publish on traditional platforms. So it publishes on Weibo, WeChat, Toutiao. Toutiao is this algorithmic-driven news service that is one of the largest web kind of digital news services in the world. It's unbelievable the amount of traffic that they get. 
uh, and then Tsai Xing, and even in the magazine itself, they have a print magazine, so from time to time, uh, her work shows up there. So uh, Effie, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you uh, staying up late for us from Beijing. Hi, Eric Kobus. Thanks for having me. I'm exhilarated to to oh, be it's here. very exciting. Now, so let's get started. First, again, a lot of people outside of China are not familiar with Tsai Xing. Maybe you can just give us a brief introduction as to who is Tsai Xing? Is it state-controlled, party-controlled? Is it independent? Give us a little background on the publication that you work for. So Tsai Xing Media is a kind of award-winning journalism in China. Uh, it's not state-owned uh, media organization. I would say it's market oriented media. So that is part of its revenue. It depends on its advertisements or the subscription sort of stuff. Um, but we do find uh, we do focus on uh, finance and the economy. Uh, well, the Tyson Globus is an um, uh, international news media platform uh, incubated by Tyson Media. And, you know, in your work, how often does Africa come up in your work and in Tsai Xing's work as a whole? Because if you are working for a market-oriented media in China, it's very hard for you to really focus on one region. So um, at my department, I kind of just covering all the global affairs for Chinese audiences. And uh, but I focus on Chinese economic undertakings overseas under the uh, ages of the Belt and Road Initiative, especially in Europe and Africa. So let's kind of talk about that a little bit, about your coverage and how you approach talking about this issue, because outside of China, so much of the discussion about Belt and Road, and particularly right now, uh, where Italy just signed on to be in the Belt and Road, Kenya just signed a second round of agreements in science, technology, and education related to the Belt and Road, and and then, but all of that is framed by the United States in many respects. That is challenging China on the Belt and Road. They are accusing China of engaging in what's called debt trap diplomacy, predatory lending. They are trying to discourage countries from signing on to the Belt and Road. Even Emmanuel Macron, the French uh, president who Xi Jinping is visiting, uh, he was raising concerns about the Belt and Road coming into Europe. But here in China, the Belt and Road is seen as something that is really something very exciting in many respects. It's the expansion of China. It's China going out, China expanding into the world and whatnot. So how do you reconcile when you're doing your coverage the controversies that exist outside and the perceptions of Belt and Road that are outside of China with some of the enthusiasm that exists inside of China so that you can give your readers a, a more balanced picture of what's going on? Yes. Um, I think my coverage just in the middle of the foreign media coverage and the state-owned media coverage. So I try to deliver um, kind of a fact-based what is going on with this that trap narrative to show a more detailed picture or specific projects or certain countries, what's going on over there to really show the nuanced uh, uh, about this debt trap diplomacy. And um, and what what kind of feedback do you get from either from your readers and and your colleagues and your your editors um, on 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 how the issue is seen? So um, do they you know is do you get feedback in terms of uh, oh you know there, there are these kind of misperceptions about about how China is expanding into the world or is it is it framed more as oh 
you know, there's, there's all of this kind of uh, counter-propaganda, essentially, or like, like a kind of anti-Chinese discourse that's, that's, that's coming out? Um, well, I can talk about some of my personal experience to cover the dev trap diplomacy. Is that, uh, it's funny, because initially I bump into the word dev trap diplomacy. Actually, it's from the Weibo feed, from the public account of U.S. Embassy in Beijing. I think back in last July. Um, if my memory serves, serves me well, um, at that time, no Chinese reporters or scholars actually are talking about this, actually. So I find this idea relatively refreshing because um, you guys probably know the embassy post is based on a Harvard study saying that the countries have become vulnerable to debt trap diplomacy. Uh, you guys already invited the authors to the show, so I will skip that part. Um, but I just kind of, it's weird that I kind of witness the narrative just kind of blowing, blowing up and uh, become a, such a big thing. And, uh, you know, basically Chinese pundits and officials, they are defending that the debt trap narrative itself is a public opinion trap. So uh, the Chinese MOVA um, like to repeat a sentence whenever they are asked about the question of the debt trap, which I can roughly translate it as um, some countries that questions about debt trap, which uh, some countries' debt problems have a complicated historical background and a realistic situation. In essence, it's not only an economic and a financial issue, but also the product of an unjust and unreasonable international economic order. There's a no inevitable connection with Belt and Road Initiative. So that's their defending. I personally dig into that debt trap uh, topic is that I interviewed the Djibouti economic and financial minister to dig out a certain country about with the debt problems. Yeah, you know, it's funny when I speak with Chinese scholars or even online on LinkedIn when we have these discussions and and they will dismiss it, much like what you were saying that the, the foreign ministry statement, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, MOFA, they will issue these statements saying, you know, this is really a product of the West and whatnot. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate that that's where the Chinese are coming from because in many ways it's very dismissive of what I think are the very legitimate concerns that taxpayers in Kenya and Djibouti and Zambia have about their governments taking on too much debt. And the concern, of course, is if they're taking on all this debt, they are the, – the people, the, the working people are going to have to pay the price in the form of higher taxes, in the form of fewer services and whatnot – and when I see the Chinese sometimes being very dismissive of that, saying, no, 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 this is just a Western conspiracy or a Western concern. It's not a legitimate African concern or Belt and Road concern. Um, I, I, I feel like there's a missed opportunity here for a discussion and for some sympathy on the part of the Chinese that a tiny little country like Kenya, which is tiny compared to China, taking on billions and billions and billions of dollars of debt is worrisome. Now, for a country like China or the United States, as Koba said, they can create their own realities. They can take on massive amounts of debt because they have different ways of managing that debt. But these smaller countries don't. 
And so I'm curious when you are bringing some of these concerns, if you do bring some of these concerns to your editors or to some of the people that you speak with for your stories, do they understand it? Are they, is there any type of sympathy for the position that people in Kenya or Djibouti or Ethiopia or Zambia have for the amount of debt that's being taken on? And again, this doesn't necessarily mean that China is doing anything wrong. It just means that there's a legitimate concern here. I covered two cases. One is Djibouti, one is the uh, SGR contract of the uh, Kenya. So, uh, but I I received a very interesting feedback from a reader I'd like to bring up here. Um, Probably may answer your questions. Um, He thinks that the debt trap narrative just uh, reflects the discrepancy between the Chinese and the Western way of thinking because Chinese people emphasize the issue of a motivation. As long as a person's motivation is good, his behavior can be forgiven. Uh, but Westerners, uh, though I hate this word, but on the other hand, believe the motivation is inclusive and ever-changing, and that the only documented evidence is his behavior and the results or the effects of the of that behavior. So, um, so the Chinese tend to say that uh, our subjective motivation are good. So um, we don't have we we don't have we don't have any attention to trap any countries. But other countries like America, they focus on the fact or the result that the governments like Kenya or Sri Lanka are likely to fall into China's debt trap. I think that's kind of difference over here. Yeah, it's a very interesting kind of philosophical distinction. Um, and uh, you know, to which extent do you do you think that it then whose job does it then become to to express the motivation of of of, China, of different Chinese actors, but particularly the Chinese government? Is it is it the 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 job of of the Chinese government themselves, which we've seen as you know as as you've also pointed out, it in, you know they tend to favor set expressions or set sentences that, you know, kind of uh, these kind of prepared answers to these particular kind of questions, which frequently doesn't go very far in in actually convincing people. Um, Or does it then become, does some of that responsibility then start to fall on other actors in Chinese society, which would then include journalists too? Let me just, just cut you off at the pass right there. It's very clear where the responsibility, where the responsibility in China lies. That starts and begins with the party. The party sets the priorities, and the party, remember, in China, stands above the government, the state. So it's first the party, then the state, and then media and the rest of the other stakeholders all kind of follow the lead of the party. Is that correct, Effie, in your understanding of just basic Chinese kind of political science and how it works? Yeah, kind of. Uh, also, the motivations thing is uh, I all. I also curious about the debt trap because it's originally people said only probably the actual example of the trap itself is the Sri Lanka have been total port, but um, some people just advised me says probably you should approach to the uh, the state owned company the merchant corporation to ask them whether they have the intention to trap Sri Lanka. But it, it's really hard to get a company to say, we don't have the intention to trap Sri Lanka. So that's the thing. 
Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You know, Kobus, it is so, and, and again, at the top of the show, I said we're having parallel conversations. I mean, they are completely disconnected from one another. And what's so interesting what Effie is talking about in terms of this idea of intention, because that really resonates with me as an American, where we think of ourselves as in, innately good. We are the force for good in the world. We mean well. And Americans oftentimes struggle with the idea that people don't like us. I mean, after 9-11, one of the biggest pieces of confusion among the body politic was, why would they do this to us? We are good people because our intentions are to bring democracy to the world, are to help the world. Again, we have this myth that we spend an enormous amount of our federal budget on international aid when, in fact, we actually don't. It's about one one-thousandth of the U.S. federal budgets on aid. But it's it's very similar, I think, Cobus, in the in this idea of intention. And I'd be interested as a media scholar what your what your thoughts are on that. And I'm both comparing the American kind of mythology and then what you're hearing about the Chinese mythology related to intention. Yeah, I think, you know, for, from a double outsider perspective, I think there's frequently quite a lot of overlap there. You know, um, you know, bo- on both sides, there is frequently this 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 idea that that uh, in, you know in, intentions were pure, and then the 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 reality had some you know were a little, was a little bit more messy. Um, and you know, in the in the case I think of the U.S., you know, a lot of that is is you know those are narratives that that don't only come from government place; they they come from a deep kind of cultural place, which includes you know sources like Hollywood, for example. You know the the idea of like blowing up a city in order to save that city, for example, is is part of a kind of of narratives that one would see both in pop culture and then sometimes filtering up into into you know kind of more official narratives as well so i think it's it's very interesting to to actually look at what some of the similarities are between between those two because because again like you know they they they, they occupy such unique positions in the world i think from the african side you would frequently see um, Africa tends to think of itself a lot more as acted upon, you know, rather than being an, a, a global actor. And I think there lies a very fundamental difference. You know, the, the US and China are global actors and therefore they need a set of stories that explain global acting. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's then interesting how, how those sometimes overlap, you know, to, to the extent where, you know, when we talked about movies like Wolf Warrior 2, for example, a lot of the, of the style of something like Wolf Warrior 2 is in, is informed by earlier U.S. movies like Rambo. So th- those, you know, the, those narratives are kind of in conversation with each other, I think. Quick question for you, Effie, You're talking about, uh, you mentioned about the SGR, the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya, and one of the stories that you worked on was the contract. And so let me just refresh people on this, was that as part of the Standard Gauge Railway, it was revealed that the port of Mombasa was going to be put up as collateral uh, to pay or secure the loans for, uh, not to pay, but to secure the loans for the Standard Gauge Railway. Now, in Kenya, and even in the United States and other places, this revelation was greeted with shock. I did not see it as 
as shocking <laughs> as a lot of other Americans did, because uh, Kenyans have made it very, very clear that they do not want this to be aid or charity. And for countries that are not creditworthy, they have to put up something as collateral against a loan. And when you ask people the question, and I posed this question on LinkedIn, and I did not get any good answers from it. What does a country like Kenya do that does not have natural resources that it can use as collateral, like Angola or the Sudans? They have to put up national assets. And, and then we, you know, we just didn't, the conversation didn't really go past that. But we never really got a Chinese perspective on this story. And you had the opportunity to speak with uh, a Chinese expert on African investment law, Zhu Weidong, from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And I'd be very curious to hear uh, what his take on the uh, on this story is and what the Chinese take in general in your news coverage was on the issue of the Port of Mombasa and the loans for the Standard Gauge Railway. So the expert I interviewed, he's from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So, But I think he made some very good clar clarification to fill up the information gap, which I find necessary to the debate. Um, as you mentioned, uh, but I'd like to sum up the three main strident clauses uh, about this revel uh, revelation. So the first one is the, the China Exim Bank asked Kenya to give up state sovereign immunity on key assets like the Kenya Ports Authority. The second is any disputes on the loan would only be resolved in Beijing through an institution called China International Economic and Trade Arbitration Commission. And the proper law uh, where conflicts occur would be Chinese law. And the third is confidential clause. Um, that is uh, without prior written permission from the lender, Kenya cannot make the deal public. Um, I can go through them one by one, but I think the the Zhu Zhu Weidong and me, um, it's it is worth point out that it is in the first place that all the clauses of the contract actually are the result of mutual negotiation. So, um, so he, therefore, it is unfair to say that a single country has made unilateral concessions. Over the over the pack, um, the first thing is the the sovereign immunity, because uh, at present there are two views on sovereign immunity in the realms of international laws, because um, some countries stick to absolute sovereign immunity like China, while some other countries apply to restrictive sovereign immunity, which means the immunity is restricted to claims involving states' public, uh, public acts and it does not extend to suits based on its commercial or private conduct. So it is important to point out that it's common for country to waive sovereign immunity in international business activities, especially for African countries, in order to get loans to build infrastructure or to attract investment to promote business. Because um, simply by doing so, just to increase the confidence of foreign investors or lenders to ensure their 
um, properties safety. Um, so from Drew's point of view, Kenya um, has no clear legal provisions for sovereign community, but I think Kenya accept the British system of the case law. Uh, therefore, we can look through some previous cases. Um, so Drew looks through all the documents and he come to the conclusion that Kenya adopted the practice of restrictive immunity, um, which would be not granted if the government engaged in commercial activities. It can be seen that Kenya adopts the position of a restrictive community in practice. So um, concerning the first one, they don't think there's any wrongdoings by putting the key assets like the ports as the uh, collateral since the government want to involve in international business uh, activities. The second is about the arbitration and uh, proper law. I think Kenya has good reason to question that the agreement is based in Kenya and the railways built in Kenya and assets we're talking about belongs to Kenya, right? So why the disputes are governed by Chinese law? Because from his point of view, international commercial loan contracts, if the parties do not choose the law specifically, the law of a lender's country is normally the proper law in cause of a uh, in case of a dispute. So he thinks giving the exam bank is based in Beijing. So it's not really stealthy for China to ask the arbitration uh, take place in Beijing. Um, also, Kenya concerns that China choose specific arbitration may result in unjust and partial outcome. But Zhu introduced to me that According to the arbitration rules of the CIETAC, um, the arbitration court usually consists of three arbitrators. The two parties could specific their own arbitrators, and the third chief arbitrators could be jointly chosen by two parties. So the nationality here is not really a problem. Um, so the Kenya could choose their Kenyan arbitrator and the third party could be from France, Australia, any country, if the two parties agreed upon. Um, uh, uh, personally, after, into, after talking to this, I think China is trying to figure out alternative arbitration solution to protect its interest in Africa. Um, since I think China got this kind of a trust issue with Western arbitration institutions. Just can you imagine the China-Africa case is arbitrated in New York, Paris, and London? Um, and probably for small African countries, they may be not able to afford the cost as well. Um, so I look through the FOCAC framework the FOCAC is actually working on improving the mechanism of a China-Africa joint arbitration. Because China and Africa will implement the mutual implement plan for arbitrators and set up joint arbitration center. I think the release 
by the June last year, Shanghai, Johannesburg, Beijing, Shenzhen, Nairobi, centers of the China African Joint Arbitration Center has already already、uh, been announced. And another thing, Zhu pointed out is that the、uh, how China deal with the、uh, investment disputes in Africa, because generally the resolution is regulated by three means. One is bilateral investment treaties, and the second is investment law of the host countries, and the third is investment contracts between investors and the host states.、Um, So, as a region that gains development by absorbing a large amount of foreign investment, African countries and foreign investment inevitably have a lot of investment disputes. So, China definitely puts a lot of attention on this.、Um, so, there's a number、uh, I just gathered. It says China. Kenya actually signed a bilateral investment protection treaty back in two thousand and one, which provided attribution details, but the treaty never came into force. Actually, in fact, China and African countries has signed thirty、um, four bilateral investment protection treaties, of which just eighteen have come into force. And the last one is about the,、uh, the confidential clause, because a lot of my friends working on the、uh, Africa infrastructure, they are saying it's pretty conventional, a regular practice, because many people may argue that multilateral institutions like World Bank and AIB, the financing terms of loans to sovereign governments are publicly available. But why China Exim Bank and、uh, China Development Bank did not disclose the terms of their loans, making it very difficult for outsiders, not only for you but also for me as a reporter, to accurately access the present value of the debt owned by the countries by China. So,、um, some、uh, some of my friends just bring it up. They're saying that. Because most of the bilateral development institutions in Europe and Africa, they are、uh, OECD DSA members. But because we know which they have this kind of requirements on transparency for low terms, but China is not part of DSA, so China just don't think it's obliged to disclosure. Isn't that amazing to see the difference in approach between the Chinese and the Western and the African side? I mean, you know, what you've just described is so different than pretty much anything we hear in the day-to-day discussion of China-Africa relations. I mean, it's just—I I find it absolutely remarkable the, the、yeah. level and how much detail there is. Kobus, I mean, it is—it's just such a different conversation, <laughs> I mean,、mm-hmm. and how much of it is framed with the West always present. Yeah, you, you know, so much of what you've said, Effie, is always in reference to the OECD, which is inherently a Western organization, or as you talked about arbitrage in New York, London, or Paris is a Western kind of context. 
Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Effie Zhang, you guys have to follow her on Twitter. She is really just a demon on Twitter. It's amazing. <laughs> she really brings a, a lots of great stories on Twitter. Effie, what is the what is your Twitter handle that people can follow if they want to stay in touch with you and get to know you a little bit? Uh, my Twitter handle just e f f y z h a n g m o y. I, again, cannot recommend it enough. And, and you hear that she brings a very distinctly Chinese view of the world for her Chinese readers. Uh, Effie is a international and global affairs reporter at Caixin Globus, Shijie Shuo. Uh, again, that does reporting on Weibo, WeChat, Toutiao, Caixin, all the different digital platforms in China for largely a millennial young audience who is engaged and in, in, interested in international affairs. Uh, she is thoughtful, she is really engaged, and she's thinking about these issues in ways that I think, again, many people outside of China are struggling to understand in terms of how do the Chinese approach these issues, which are radically different than the normal discourse in the United States, in Africa, and certainly in Europe. Effie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Your insights were were just, uh, you know, absolutely fascinating. We really appreciate it. Thank you. The honor is mine. So there you have it, Kobus. I said at the beginning of the show, there's a different conversation going on over here in China. And boy, is there a different conversation going on. And it's interesting, and I mentioned this briefly, that you know how much of the West hangs over this conversation. That they are, you know, when, when we brought up this issue of, uh, is there sensitivity and concern for Kenyan taxpayers, Zambian taxpayers, uh, it was interesting her response was, and, and I think the government's response here and the party's response is, well, no, that's a Western conspiracy and a Western concern. And and I think, gosh, if I was, and I am not, let me just put it on the record, you know, I am not a paid consultant for the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese <laughs> government, but if I were, <laughs> this is what I would say, have a little sympathy. People, yeah. I mean, this is scary stuff when, when Kenya is borrowing so much money. And when Wang Yi was in Ethiopia, I think it was a few weeks ago, and he just brushed off the issue and he said, this is not important. We did not invent debt in Africa. I think that was a missed opportunity on yeah. the Chinese foreign minister's part to really talk about to saying we understand that this is a worrisome thing. And in part because China itself borrowed heavily in the 1970s. In that, it was a lot of it was grants from Japan, but it eventually became loans. China was in a very precarious state itself 30, 40 years ago. And it can leverage that experience to be able to build credibility in Africa to say, we know what you are feeling because we too went through the same development stage not that long ago. And But they are, when I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough, tone deaf. To that argument. And so yeah, when people yeah. in in Kenya and the others, and they say, why aren't they responding to this? And it just gives the Americans all of the opening that they need to attack on this debt trap diplomacy thing, because it, it's just, I, I just, it baffles me why they're, why don't, why don't they take advantage of this? I, I just, but it is a different conversation and we heard it today. Yeah, it's a completely different conversation. It's also a different conversation, I think, in the way, you know, and in, in, in the sense that the the West, um, so how is it? It's difficult to say this in a way that doesn't sound like I'm just just like kind of uh, criticizing the West. Um, uh, you know, the, the the West because it stands for because it has so much invested in these these um, you, you know the values of kind of transnational transparency and openness and you know uh, you know 
for that reason, it tends to be, again, it's a story of, 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 um, of, of intention versus acting, right? Um, because the West is so much involved, so much invested in, in standing for some of these values, they tend to forget how Western debt impacted Africa before, you know? So, so, you know, part of why, part of why the, the Africa is so worried about Chinese debt is because of its experience with Western debt before, um, and the way that Western that Western uh, international institutions then you know turned around and, and demanded a whole lot of very I think in lots of cases very destructive ref- domestic reforms in Africa. Um, but there's also from the from the Western side in in you know in, in worrying and and cr- worrying about the debt trap issue and criticizing China for imposing all of this debt that they. There isn't a lot of acknowledgement of that history, um, you know, which which also gives this kind of eerie feeling of of the West kind of being kind of on Mount Olympus, you know, kind of and wringing its hands on these, you know, about the the problems of mortals rather than also acknowledging how certain realities in in, in Western economic history led to certain impacts in Africa, um, you know, so so the, the 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 discourse itself becomes weirdly. It kind of drifts off from the surface of the earth into space somewhere. You know, kind of it becomes yeah. kind of abstract discussion. I was thinking about a point that you made last year when you wrote for a German magazine and you said China robs the robs Europe of its narrative in Africa. And Europe has has for a long time taken this role as the paternal protector of Africa. Again, that's that's the mythology that they tell themselves, but it's in the European sphere of influence and and they know what's best for Africa. And China kind of steals that in, in many ways. And I've been thinking about this in the context of debt and that in many ways, China robs the West of its influence in Africa in many ways because Emmanuel Macron simply cannot compete with the Chinese when it comes to the amount of money that, that Beijing is spending in Africa. He would love to, but he also recognizes that his influence in Africa is dripping away day by day because he can't spend that money both for political reasons and economic reasons. Politically, it's just not feasible to spend that much in Africa. It's just there's no way that in this era of right wing populism in Europe, in the United States, that Africa is ever going to be a priority. And so given the fact that he does not have this in his arsenal, the ability to spend money to compete with the Chinese, they lose a big part of their story and they feel powerless. And in many ways, I think that is the the motivation that is fueling the American rage against the Chinese on Belton Road and about the debt issues because they know they can't compete. I mean, the BUILD Act we talked about, which is the International Development Finance Corporation, um, is $60 billion. That is just for what the United what, what China spends in Africa alone and the 60 billion for the Build Act is worldwide. So it's dwarfed by what China's spending on the Belt and Road. So this feeling of helplessness and this feeling of being outgunned I think is very disempowering for western uh, western countries. What's your what's your final thought on that? Yes, I I agree and um, and of course, you know, it, it comes with so much so much kind of narrative preloaded, you know, in, in terms of of the way that the West thinks of itself in relation to Africa. Um, not only in in terms of of you know narratives of helping Africa, but also in the way that it that it defines itself in relation to Africa. You know, so in so many ways, the West thinks of itself in ways that are the not Africa. 
you know, like Africa becomes this, this perennial kind of counterexample, you know, to, so, so, you know, for example, if you, if you wanted to say, for example, like where you see that so frequently, um, you know, it recently in, in discourse around the Trump administration, where people are complaining about the Trump, the, about corruption in the Trump administration, saying that, oh, the Trump administration is turning, is turning America into, quote, a banana republic, right? Which, which obviously has a Latin American background, but that, that idea of the dysfunctional, "Quote unquote third world state," you know that that isn't us. That we that we have to kind of guard against, and that we have to try and help those poor people to get out of that that situation. That is such a fundamental thing in in the way that that I think the U.S., Europe, Canada, and so on think of themselves in relation to the rest of the world, or uses the rest of the world to understand who they are. That I, that once that narrative starts getting disrupted, and once those countries seem less interested in engaging with with the west or less you know kind of having having more attractive partners than the west that starts i think also fueling this kind of crisis of confidence so what we tried to do today is again to bring the chinese voice into this conversation because we don't really hear much of this uh, what we're going to do over the next few weeks and months is to try and bring voices that you don't hear very often but are so critical to understanding because I personally believe we are talking past each other. And I'm really, really excited that coming up in, in a few weeks, we're going to have Colonel Chris Wyatt, who uh, is the Director of African Studies at the U.S. Army War College in the United States. And he is going to bring a very distinct uh, Trump slash conservative worldview. Again, it is a a narrative and a story that a lot of us don't fully understand, much the same way that Effie's point of view and what Effie's world that she works in with her sources and her audience and her editors is totally different than what we're talking about in Africa, the U.S., and Europe as well. So that's what we're going to be doing on the show, and we're looking for these different guests who bring points of view that we don't all, that we don't, it's hard to find. And so we're really excited to now bring you a conservative American point of view that will then complement this discussion today that we had with Effie. So what do you think? What did you think of what she said, the Chinese worldview? Did you agree with some of the things that Copas and I said about the missed opportunities? Or do you understand where the Chinese are coming from? We would love to hear from you. Uh, if you'd like to email Copas and I directly, we are responding to emails now within 24 hours. Yay. Uh, so eric at chinaafricaproject.com, Cobus at chinaafricaproject.com, or you can find us on all the various social media uh, well, you know, channels that we have, and we'll list all those at the end of the show. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another show. For Cobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.